The Democratic Republic of the Congo is facing one of the worst humanitarian crises on the international stage as a record 6.9 million people are displaced from their homes, forcing them to seek asylum across Africa. This comes in the wake of conflicts between armed groups, human rights violations, and intense gender-based violence. Since March of 2022, tensions have risen considerably, leading to the increased vulnerability of populations throughout the country, which brings us to the questions of how we got here and where we may be heading next. From Seton Hall University, this is The Global Current. I'm your host, Trisha Ballion. With me today are two fellow Seton Hall students. Covering the domestic situation today is our analyst, Nev Walker. Hi, Nev. Hi. And focusing on the international aspect today is Iman Fatima. Hey, Iman. Hi, everyone. All right, so before we get too deep into the conversation, I want to turn to you, Nev, first, just to get some background information on what's been going on in the DRC. And if you could just give us an overview of the situation and its severity, that'd be really appreciated. Yeah, so as of right now, the emergency in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, or DRC, is one of the most complex humanitarian crises in the world. There's been decades of clashes between the armed groups, as well as widespread violations of human rights and devastating incidents of gender-based violence. Ultimately, this conflict has led to the displacement of 6.1 million people within the country and forcing 1 million to seek asylum across Africa. This is especially a problem right now because the DRC hosts more than half a million refugees from neighboring countries. And can you tell us more about some of the other factors that are aggravating the conflict and about the pre-existing refugees you mentioned? Yeah, so like many questions going on right now in the region of Africa, the main factors that are aggravating this conflict are issues regarding scarcity, such as food insecurity and funding constraints. There are also issues such as epidemics and natural disasters that play into the problem. Overall, also, there is a problem with the economy. With inflation and economic instability, it leads to bigger problems such as mistrust in the government and tensions within populations. There's also the issue of refugees. Because of this conflict, there are millions of refugees that are being created, as well as the displacement of previous refugees that have been coming in from different conflicts around the continent. Mm-hmm. So we're seeing a lot of displacement, like you said, of people who weren't refugees as well as people who were refugees that had come to the DRC seeking asylum. And now they're obviously being displaced elsewhere, um, which is a really big factor in this situation. So what's the significance of March 2022 and what has followed that? Yeah, so since March 2022, insecurity in the eastern provinces of the DRC has reached new heights, leading to an exponential rise in protection incidents, especially those um, involving sexual violence and severe restrictions to the humanitarian spaces. In June of 2023, an interagency standing committee system-wide scale-up was activated for the Eastern DRC. A month later, 24 UN entities came together to urge immediate action to protect women and children. And so um, just to build on what you were just telling us about the committee and these um, actions taken to handle the crisis, what are some other steps that have been taking um, as the year closes? Yeah, so as the year closes out and in next year in 2024, the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, or the UNHCR, will continue to play a role in helping relieve tensions. They will do this through community-based protection and protection monitoring, analysis and reporting, health education and livelihoods, and livelihoods will remain key priority in response areas. The UN. HCR will also continue to play a leadership and advocacy role in the protection, shelter, and non 
food items and camp coordination and camp uh, management clusters in the DRC. The UNHCR will also strengthen gender-based violence prevention, risk migration and response mechanisms, and will also work with disability inclusion, gender equality, in addition to safeguarding the rights of the forcibly displaced, especially regarding women and children. Gotcha. And so we'll we'll dive more into some of those future steps that are going to be taken and the future outlook to this whole scenario. But before we get to that, um, I want to stick with you, Nev, and ask it more about the history of this conflict. I mean, as the largest humanitarian crisis this has been going on for, you know, this is not a recent thing that's been going on for many, many years. So if you could just give us an idea of how did this conflict start? Yeah. So like many other African conflicts, the conflict taking place right now is lengthy and there's a lot of different wars intermingled together. The conflict first started with the first Congo War, which started in 1996 and ended in 1997. This war began in the wake of the 1994 Rwandan genocide. For those who don't know about the Rwandan genocide, it was waged between two ethnic tribes, the Hutus and the Tutsis. Ethnic Hutu extremists killed an estimated 1 million minority ethnic Tutsis and moderate Hutus in Rwanda. During and following the genocide, nearly 2 million Hutu refugees crossed into the DRC border, mostly settling in refugee camps in the North Kivu and South Kivu provinces. And so this is how the conflict kind of went into the DRC. So following the Rwandan Patriotic Front's victory, against the Rwandan genocide, the new Tutsi-led government began its involvement in the DRC, which was then known as the Republic of Zaire. So Rwandan troops under the leadership of the newly instated president, Paul Kagame, with Congo-based Tutsi militias, with Rwandan backing, launched an invasion of Zaire. Um, At the time, the country was being ruled by dictator Mobutu Sese Siko and other African countries did get involved, including Uganda, Angola, and Burundi. Each country had their own security concerns regarding the dictator and his support of rebel groups across the continent. And also the invasion was coordinated with the help of Laurent Kabila, who was the opposition leader. So during this, the first war, thousands died some former Hutu militants and other members of armed groups. Overall, this is a very complicated war, which resulted in the deaths of millions and millions of refugees. But the war finally ended in 1997 when uh, Mubutu fled Kinshasa, the capital of the DRC, or Zaire, and then Kabila was installed as the president and changed the country's name to the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Thank you for that really good overview of the First Congo War. And so how did this conflict persist? Yeah, so the First Congo War ended in 1997, and then peace did not necessarily last for that long because in 1998, the Second um, Congo War broke out, and this war followed the deterioration of relations between Kigali and Kinshasa, which is, Kigali, by the way, is the capital of Rwanda and Kinshasa is the capital of the DRC. So basically what happened was the president that was recently reinstated at the end of the first war, he denied claims that Rwanda was responsible for winning the war and placing him in power. And just as an attempt to diminish the Rwandan influence over the government at the time, 
he began removing ethnic Tutsis from the DRC government and took me- measures to weaken Rwanda's military presence in eastern DRC, which involved placing troops at the border. So in, in response to this, Rwanda in 1998 invaded the DRC. Other countries got involved, Angola, Namibia, and Zimbabwe fought in favor of the DRC, opposing Rwanda, Uganda, and Burundi, as well as rebel groups which were supporting either side. In 2001, a coup attempt for Kabila occurred and he was assassinated and his son took over. And then in 2004, the war ended with the taking over of the government by the son and the death toll by 2004 reached around 3 million people because of the war, but also because of the associated humanitarian disaster. And were there any like peace agreements that came following that conflict to try to facilitate peace in the region? Yes, uh, fortunately, peace talks did initiate after the second war. Between 2002 and 2003, Rwanda, Uganda, and the DRC began implementing a set of peace agreements that authorized a transitional government in Kinshasa, led by the son, and then in 2006, he was formally inaugurated following a long-awaited popular election. And that being said, despite these agreements and the presence of UN peacekeeping forces and the establishment of commissions, there's still unrest and clashes that persist to this day, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. And so what are some more of the recent developments we've seen regarding this overall conflict that is impacting the humanitarian crisis? Yeah, so in 2022, renewed tensions have mounted between the DRC and Rwanda. M23 rebels, or March 23rd rebels, which we will be discussing mm-hmm. later, they resurface after five years of inactivity and gain control of the larger parts of North Kivu provinces in July 2023. And then the capital of the DRC accused uh, Rwanda of funding and supporting the M22's resurgence. Unfortunately, it's an accusation that is now supported by the African Union and the European Union and the United States. So there is no authenticity to this accusation. In response to this, the Rwandan capital accused the DRC capital of supporting Hutsu extremist militia and increased its military presence inside the Congo. Rwanda and Uganda also have financial stakes in mines in Congo, which could potentially be a reason for increased military activity in the area, especially because of you know economic instability. And unfortunately, repeated attempts to reach lasting ceasefire between the government and these groups have been unsuccessful and violence continues to come in new waves. And so how has this been overall impacting the humanitarian crisis we're looking at? And have there been attempts at remedying all this? Uh, yeah, so a humanitarian issue is forming right now in regards to a refugee crisis. The DRC is home to nearly 7 million people who have been internally displaced due to the threat of violence, as well as extreme poverty and mining expansion. Of these 7 million people, approximately 1 million nationals are seeking refuge beyond the DRC borders. There have been attempts to remedy this issue intentions in general, yet those attempts seem to be made in vain. Unfortunately, the UN peacekeeping mission, MONUSCO, has repeatedly been accused of failing to protect citizens, which has triggered violence and the looting of several of their bases, which is 
honestly very unfortunate. Mm -hmm. So thank you so much for giving us a really good overview of the conflict as a whole and the history kind of leading up to all this. So now that we're back into the present time, I want to turn to you, Iman, and look at some of the more international aspects of this, specifically the responses from the UN. I know the United Nations has had a big part in this conflict and the crisis on a whole. So how has the UN responded to the recent rises in tensions? So the United Nations official in the Democratic Republic of the Congo addressed the Security Council, highlighting ongoing security challenges in the eastern part of the country due to armed groups, leading to the displacement of 6.9 million people. The M23 crisis and tensions between the Democratic Republic of the Congo and Rwanda persist. The UN calls for support and regional processes emphasizing the protection of civilians. The Security Council discusses the accelerated withdrawal of MONUSCO, urging coordinated cooperation. Concerns include sexual violence cases, the effectiveness of the National Reparations Fund, and preparation for general elections. Various representatives express views on withdrawal, cooperation, and the role of external actors in the conflict. The Democratic Republic of the Congo proposes an earlier withdrawal date for MONUSCO, while Rwanda denies responsibility, calling for attention to root causes and external interference. Bento Kaida, the special representative of the Security General, reported to the United Nations Security Council on the situation in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, DRC. She highlighted ongoing insecurity in the eastern part of the country, particularly mentioning the M23 crisis, tensions with Rwanda, and continued attacks by armed groups. The M23 still controls strategic points in certain territories and has not fulfilled obligations agreed upon in the Luanda roadmap. Keita urged M23 to disarm and withdraw from occupied territories. In Itori, insecurity remains high due to the activities of armed groups such as the Coalition of Congolese Democrats and ADF. Keita emphasized the humanitarian challenges with over 6 million people displaced in Ituri, North Kivu, and South Kivu. She called for continued donor support for the humanitarian response plan. Okay, so can you give us a little bit more information on some of the other security issues that we're seeing and kind of the, the aspects of that and what that means for the region on a whole? The M23 rebels and have played a significant role in the conflict by engaging in armed confrontations with the DRC government forces. Their involvement has further complicated the already complex dynamics of the conflict in the region. The security situation in the eastern region of the Democratic Republic of Congo, DRC, is worsening, especially in North Kivu, with attention focused on preventing potential conflict between Rwanda and the DRC. M23 rebels accused of human rights violations and displacements have been at the center of the unrest. The East African community deployed a force in 2022 to address tensions but criticism has emerged leading the DRC to seek support from the Southern African development community. However, there are concerns about the SADC mission, including its potential focus on M23 rebels, this risk of antagonizing the East African community, and the challenge of addressing the complex multifaceted uh, violence in the vast region. Additionally, the article emphasizes the need for a nuanced approach that considers the grievances of various groups and avoids a purely military solution. Gotcha. And so kind of going back to the responses from the UN and from the other public figures, so who else has responded to this crisis? So the executive director of AFIA, MAMA, 
Annie Tenga Modi emphasized the severe humanitarian crisis in the DRC, including displacement, sexual violence, and attacks against women. She called for international support for women-led initiatives, increased her efforts to combat gender-based violence, and financing for prevention programs. The chair of the Security Council community on the DRC, Michael Xavier Biang, provided an overview of the community's work, including consultations and briefings on the group of experts' reports. He highlighted the engagement with the DRC monitoring mechanism, uh, mechanism and various pr uh, presentations by experts and the UN agencies. All right, so I want to turn back to you, Nev, and look at some more of the other aspects domestically within the situation. Um, so who have been some key players in the conflict that we need to take a look at? Yeah, so a key player, especially in this conflict, is the M23 rebels. Like I mentioned before, and we've talked about before, so the M23 stands for the March 23rd movement, which first originated in the Congo Wars. These Rwandan-backed rebels in Eastern DRC have played an integral role in this conflict and have committed unlawful killings, rapes, and other war crimes since late 2022. The situation regarding these rebels has even escalated to the point where martial law was enacted in the region, which has increased tensions uh, greatly, especially among ethnic lines. And so what are some of the like uh, key political figures we should be looking at? Yeah, so right now, the current president, we should be looking at him, of the DRC, Felix Chisekede. He has been in control of the DRC since 2019, and he has taken steps to consolidate his authority and to diminish the influence of his predecessor, Joseph Kabila, who was the son of the assassinated president that ended the Second Congo War. Yet despite this, there are already signs that he may be taking a more repressive turn, which seems to be a pattern in this region. And what about any other Congolese uh, organizations we should be aware of? Yeah, so there are many groups now involved in this conflict, not just governments or entire countries. In addition to the threat of the M22, as well as the Congolese military and residents of Eastern DRC, there's been continued attacks by the Islamic State-affiliated Allied Democratic Forces, the ADF, and other groups. The ADF specifically has been responsible for attacks against civilians as well as UN peacekeepers. So how is the current election cycle? Um, I know that we've mentioned that that's going to be coming up soon. How is that current election cycle going to be impacting the conflict? Yeah, so yeah, the current election cycle is really coming up. Uh, December 20th, 2023 is when the DRC is holding its national elections. So in the in the three past three months, the so three months leading up to the election, candidates have been attacked by the president and even jailed. And political opposition has been split between around two dozen candidates. But as, uh, as of right now, there are five main candidates. The president himself, obviously, as the incumbent, he is the front runner at this time. There are other candidates that are running right now. I'm just going to mention a few. So Moses Kadubi, he is a wealthy businessman and leader of the Together for the Republic Party. There's Martin Feulu, who is the leader of the Ikaidi Party, or also known as the Commitment to Citizenship and Development Party. Dennis Makwiji, he is a Nobel Peace Prize winner in 2018 for his work with raped women. And then also a 
Adolfi Muzito. He was the former prime minister under Joseph Kabila. And he was also a former minister of budget and ex-inspector of finance. And he is the leader of the Novel Elon party. All right. And so who do you think seems most likely to win um, out of this election? And what might that impact be on this crisis? As of right now, it seems like the current president, obviously he's the incumbent, so he has, you know, the standing to win. And then also has been alleged that he has been attacking candidates and jailing them. And his seemingly democratic start has been switching more and more to a repressive lately. So, you know, obviously we'll see how it goes. But mm-hmm. as of right now, he's the front runner. All right, we'll definitely be keeping an eye on that as that um, comes up really quickly. So I want to turn back to Iman for a little bit and ask real quick regarding international responses and connections. So how does some international law come into play, such as like conventions on genocide and sort of responses related to that? So the UN Special Advisor on the Prevention of Genocide, Alice Verimule, has expressed deep concern about ex- escalating violence in the Great Lakes region, particularly in the Democratic Republic of Congo, DRC. Following her visit to the DRC in November 2020, she highlighted indicators of potential authority crimes including hate speech, political identity, politicization, proliferation of militias, and systematic attacks against specific ethnic groups. The situation involves intercommunal violence in Western DRC and is exacerbated by the presence of armed groups formed by individuals involved in the 1994 genocide against the Tutis in Rwanda. The special advisor emphasized the need to address underlying causes, prevent further atrocity, and finding a political solution. She called for immediate de-escalation protection of civilians and respect for the international humanitarian law. The ongoing conflict is particularly alarming as the DRC prepares for national elections in 2023. The special advisor urged all parties to work towards sustainable peace, commended efforts by regional organizations and the UN, she also called for support for intercommunal reconciliation initiatives and emphasized the importance of preventing hate speech and discrimination to avoid a recurrence of past atrocities. And so what other connections do nations have um, with this conflict, whether that's through colonization or just within the region itself? So industrialization in the region, particularly related to extraction of natural resources, can contribute to the conflict by fueling competition for control over lucrative assets. Unregulated or industrial activities may lead to environmental degradation uh, affecting local communities and tensions over resource control. The exploitation of Congo's rich natural resources, particularly during the colonial era, has fueled economic interest but has not translated into widespread prosperity for the local population. The legacy of colonialism, including arbitrary borders and economic structures, have contributed to the political instability and socioeconomic disparities in the DRC. And so how does this impact the neighboring countries been responding and impacted by this um, humanitarian crisis? Displacement in Congo is often a result of multifaceted factors, including ethnic tensions, resource competition, and power struggles among various groups. The displacement crisis has severe humanitarian consequences with challenges in providing advocate shelter, health care, and education for those affected. The economic systems established during British colonial rule often perpetuated inequality, factoring, favoring the colonial powers, and contributing to the long-lasting economic disparities in formal 
colonies. Could you expand a little bit on that colonialism, maybe like some specific countries to be looking at in that sense? Sure. Belgium has a huge involvement in the crisis that have afflicted the, in the Congo, exploring the nation's varied postures from interference to support withdrawal. It del- delves into specific crises such as the assassination of Patrice Lumumba and the Great War of Africa and it analyzes the contrasting strategies of Belgian foreign masters Louis McMichael and Carol D. Gooch. One of the studies dives into it and considers different perspectives including rational choice theory and post-colonial studies to understand the intricate nation of Belgium's rule. The main question posed is whether there is a shift towards normalized relations between Belgium and its formal colony given the complexities arising from colonial history and ongoing security challenges in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. The text also introduces a triangular dynamic of perpetrator, victim and rescuer roles, emphasizing Belgium's delicate position in avoiding accusation of neocolonialism while maintaining a privileged status in its relationship with the Congo. All right, and so real quick before we wrap up, because we're running out of time here a little bit, what can we expect to see from the international community in terms of aid for the refugees of the DRC? I'll ask that to Iman. So unfortunately, there hasn't been that much of coverage for DRC, and I think it's very important for people to know what's happening. Recently, someone, a man, fired himself, and it's for people to get more awareness. So if we don't hold people accountable, especially higher powers, colonial, mm-hmm. uh, former colonial powers, we won't be able to do that much for aid. So first, there needs to be a lot of awareness on what's happening because people still don't know. And second, holding higher power accountable and then giving aid to countries like DRC. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I think there's definitely um, an imbalance in coverage sometimes when it comes to international affairs such as this. I want to turn to you, Nev, real quick before we end. Has the crisis come to a turning point towards peace or is more conflict likely going to continue? Honestly, at this point, I think it could go either way towards peace or towards more conflict. Unfortunately, conflict between ethnic groups is nothing new, and considering the DRC has been in pretty consistent conflict, at least for the past two decades, even longer, it doesn't seem like it will be ending anytime soon. With globalization, though, the ability to communicate is a lot easier than it was during the first two Congo wars. So new technology can really go both ways regarding whether there'll be more peace or conflict. On one hand, technology has improved, so like war technology has been innovated upon. Yet on the other hand, other different vessels and organizations can be used to facilitate peace talks, whether in person or virtual. And a lot of this technology has been more accessible, especially, you know, since 2020, since Mm -hmm. the pandemic. So it it could honestly go either way from this point on. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you all so, so much for coming on. This has been a really great discussion and I appreciate y'all's thoughts on the topic. Yeah, thank you so much. Bye. Joining me now to round out some other headlines this week is our news briefer, Juliana Mori. Hey, Juliana. Hey, Trish. So what headlines do you have for us this week? Uncovered for sterilization in Europe. The Vatican refuses to evolve. Reparations for comfort women. Lots of interesting stories to cover today. Let's start with the forced sterilization in Europe. The practice of forced sterilization is banned under multiple international 
treaties, but many European nations have made exceptions for women with disabilities. 37 nations in Europe and the EU have declared that the act of forcefully sterilizing a person is a violation of human rights. Additionally, the United States has signed the Istanbul Convention, the main human rights treaty that addresses violence against women, but has not ratified it. Most lawmakers excuse the inability to properly address this issue at hand by saying that forced sterilization is for the best. This has recently come to light after many women and families of victims are calling for justice and exposing the harm that is not being talked about in the global north. Also, this was uncovered after Japan declared that Forced sterilization of trans people is a violation of human rights. That's a very uh, interesting aspect of public international law. And how about the news from the Vatican? A group of German bishops wrote to the Holy See to discuss the possibility of female ordination and changing the church's teachings on homosexuality in the upcoming meeting with the delegates from the German Synodal Way in Rome. The responding letter from a cardinal reminded these bishops of the possible disciplinary consequences for quote, defying the teachings of the church, end quote. Pope Francis emphasized the Catholic Church in Germany's need for prayer, penance, and adoration. This comes after many suspected that the Catholic Church would change their opinion on women in the church and the acceptance of LGBTQ plus people. Definitely a point of contention we'll be watching. And our last story? The Japanese government has been ordered by a South Korean court to compensate a group of women who were forced into sex slavery during World War II. Comfort women is a term to identify the women who were forced from their homes in China, Korea, and other occupied territories to become sex slaves for the Japanese military. The 16 victims originally filed the suit for the compensatory award of 200 million won each, which is about 155,000 USD. The case had previously been dismissed in 2016, and the decision has since been reversed. Japan's foreign minister, Yoko Kamikawa, responded by declaring that this ruling violates international law. Thank you very much for coming on, Juliana. Thank you, Trish. That's all the time we have for today. Be sure to follow The Global Current on Instagram and LinkedIn for updates on upcoming shows. This show would not have been possible without our dedicated crew, executive producer Bobby Kyle, associate producers Kasia Kostraba and Juliana Mori, technical producers Ashley Skladani and Amelia Vensachinsky, and of course, your host, Trisha Ballion. The Global Current is brought to you by Seton Hall University. As always, keep it current with us and catch us on the waves every Sunday at 8.30 a.m. on 89.5 FM WSOU. Until next time, thanks, y'all.